Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller, an African-American, licensed psychotherapist, professor, diversity coach, consultant, and author. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias, anything that marginalizes and oppresses. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, we'll have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? When David Romano began to feel the early symptoms of depression in middle school, he thought everyone felt that way and that it was part of growing up. The popular student and multi-sport athlete tried to maintain his outward image as the fun, goofy kid and used sports and other activities to cover his inner struggle. A mental health checklist he read in health class shone a light on his symptoms and his life changed forever. After some ups and downs, David began his mental health journey. Since then David has focused his energies on self-healing and spreading awareness about mental health and suicide prevention. David has a private practice and he travels around the country to share his lived experience. Please welcome David Romano to change the narrative with J.D. Fuller. So David, maybe it feels like I'm a stalker, maybe not. <laughs> but I appreciate you responding and mm -hmm. uh, accepting my invitation and being willing to share your story with us today. So welcome to Change the Narrative and thank you for being here. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, I was surprised. I think you hunted me down at my <laughs> at practice I work at, right? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> when I get an idea, you know, it could hey, be a problem. Well, uh-huh. That's good. It's a good problem to have. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. Okay, let's start with a little background information. All right. I like to ask one question that kind of sums it up to get us started. Mm -hmm. So how would you describe something relevant about your family system? Well, it was a it's a system and it, you know, growing up I was the youngest of five kids. And youngest you know, northern Yeah, you do? Okay. Now, northern Minnesota. Grew up right on the tip of, tip of Lake Superior, beautiful space, and all the needed necessities were there, right? Had everything I needed. Emotionally, though, there was a gap. Emotions were not something that was talked about. You know, just that, that deeper support, that deeper, how are you doing, what's going on, um, just wasn't a part of um, the culture of my family growing up. And that had a pretty profound impact on me, I think, throughout my, my childhood. And what, what is the, the culture? I mean, I understand the family culture, but what's your ethnic cultural background? Well, in that, in Northern Minnesota, there's a lot of Norwegian, Swedish culture. And so there's a lot of pride and just really hard work. Yes. Um, you, know, um, you know, we just buckle down, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. Mm -hmm. And that was my, my parents, you know, from a small community. And, and they, they battled, um, you know, to give us the life that, that we got, which was very privileged. But, uh, you know, they had, they had to battle to get there. And especially my mom. And so, yeah, there was, there was a lot of pride in that. Yeah. You know, five kids is a lot. I came from a, a youngest of nine. So I know large yeah. families, you know, and working class don't always go together. So mm -hmm. I, I respect that, that struggle. I know it's real. And I understand the culture of that working class mentality. You just do what you got to do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and for a lot of that's the only option, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, the type of schools you went to, before we get into your full story, you know, what kind of schools did you go to? Were they mainstream kind of public or? Yeah, yeah public school from a predominantly um, white community I'm up in Northern Minnesota. It's changed a lot over these last couple of years, but it was a lot of just kind of medium income, lower income uh, families when I was when I was there. Okay. There's so much richness in your story and I appreciate your vulnerability and what I've read about you. So I'm just going to get into it. And I want to kind of like take it piece by piece. 
I think the relevance, and you probably hear me say this again, is so significant because we're starting school again and the age which your story begins or becomes really relevant is so significant. And as we talked about before getting on air, you know, COVID hasn't stopped giving. So it's even more important for us to elevate your story and what occurred in your life. So I'm going to begin with the fact that you didn't just wake up one day and start to have mental health symptoms. Because yeah. I think that's a myth. I think, you know, when I talk to parents, it's always like, I don't know what happened. Just, you know, one day this, this, you know, child of mine became this. And it's pretty, dis- it's disturbing because it's like, it, it didn't just happen overnight. So right. what, what do you think was the catalyst for you starting to exhibit depression that were more obvious to you and maybe the people around you or maybe not? Yeah, I think, you know, growing up, yeah, I started seeing some of these symptoms uh, as early as like third grade, noticing this stuff. And there was, I remember so many memories of being a little third grader. I remember this one just walking down the hall and, and talking to my mom and being like, why am I not, why do I not look like them? Or like, what's wrong with, and like, I was just so hyper-focused on the ways that, that I was flawed, I'm inadequate. Even as a little third grader, I, you know, just feeling really a lot of insecurity about who I was. I always felt like there was something missing. And so then I started pursuing this, you know, how, how do I feel, how do I get a sense of worth? And that was through, um, you know, external validation, which typically you only get from achievement, right? With school or sports. And so I was desperate to, to feel like I was enough and get that external validation in those areas. But let's slow um, down. Let's slow down because third grade is really, really young. What did you know about external validation then? <laughs> Nothing. I just want to feel good, right? I just want to, you know, and I think, I think it goes into my family of, of being the youngest of five kids and, you know, with two parents, you know, they're, they're, they're not playing a one-on-one, they're playing a zone, right? So there's always <laughs> attention that they can give to each kid. And, and I, I certainly don't blame them for anything, but it was just hard. And, and I was a sensitive kid. I had a lot of emotion, a lot of big emotions. And, you know, it, very quickly, I, I think I was just, when I showed big, big emotions or, or a big personality that was punished. And that was, you know, you're, you're being too much, you're being too annoying. Um, you know, teachers always talk about it bouncing off the walls. And I was just a kid with a lot of energy okay. and anxiety, but you know, it was, yeah, it was, it was tough. There's a couple of things you said there that I want to, I want to jump on. So one is that how anxiety can look like ADHD, because where did one been yeah. and the other end? And it's often yeah. misinterpreted and, and medicated in a way that's not necessarily aligned with the core issues. But the other thing is, you know, big feelings, right? You know, in, in our culture, I know in my culture, there's a stigma of big feelings, but also in the American culture, there is yeah. a stigma of big feelings. And so it really you know, it resonates with me when you say I, I was feeling more than people could tolerate, essentially, is what I hear you saying. Is that about right? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's that's what I see. You know, we look around and, you know, I'm a therapist now. I work with clients all the time. And so many of these clients I work with are just amazing, right? They're amazing human beings that have so much creativity and insight and, and things that they offer. But all of that creativity, which was big at one point or is always big at one point yeah. has been snuffed out. Yeah. Right. And that's what I think got that happened for me too. But yeah, I look around and, and some of the best therapists I know and some of the best uh, artists and creators have big emotions yeah. and that's a beautiful gift, right? Mm-hmm. If it's used, used in a way that's, that's in a healthy, effective way, but yeah. no one talks about that. No, no one, no, 
Yeah. You're absolutely right. And, you know, two things. One, in the workshop today, we were talking about what we want to leave behind was one of the exercises I did with the kids. Like, you know, as part of reentering, you have to exit. And like people have an exit interview when they leave the job. We're going to do some exiting now. What are you going to leave behind? And this one kid said, you know, my intensity. And I was like, I felt like she was peeping me. I was like, intensity? That's me too. <laughs> like, you know, huh? and I just thought yeah. it was so amazing that this kid you know, sixth grader said my intensity. So I really wanted to validate it in a way that, you know, that was just, she's talking about a lot of feelings and, 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 you know, trying to contain them so they don't impact others. But I wanted to validate that our intensity is, is real, AKA big feelings. Absolutely. And that, and that impacts people not you know, obviously big feelings can impact other people or ourselves in a negative way, but also in a positive way, right. in such a beautiful way. And, you know, I just tell my clients, and, and I'm just going to refer to the, the folks with the bigger feelings as empaths, as very empathetic people, right? And I tell my clients all the time, an untrained empath, one who hasn't learned how to navigate their, the, you know, that those emotions is a very dangerous thing, Yeah. right? Because yeah. these these people are just giving mm. all the time as well, not like to the people around them as well. And that just burns, burns so many people out. And they're not practicing self-care. They're not setting boundaries. They're just they're just giving away everything. You know, and I, I would add to that. I love how you said that. And I would add to that. It's also a high level of emotional intelligence, which was never a thing when I grew up. Yeah. You know, it was just it was just too much, or or you're too sad, or you're too whatever. But it was yeah. never like you know, it wasn't even a thing. So there was no language for it. But now, I, you know, people know about it. We need to also say it's a it's a higher level of emotional intelligence to feel so deeply and to really name it in such a way that it feels like uh, a gift instead of a curse and it can be both (laughs) as all things can be yes yes very true the other thing you said i think that's incredibly important is that parents have difficulty getting to this because they feel blamed Mm -hmm. right and you said i don't blame my parents we always say that i don't blame my parents but it's not about blame. It's about you were the kid and they were the adult and they did what they could. And in your case, it didn't meet your emotional needs. That's not about blame. That's about accountability. Mm -hmm. And when you have a grip of kids, you know, try to keep track of them, let alone their emotions sometimes is feels impossible, especially when you're working class. So I just want to rename that and, and, and remove the stigma of blame. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I, I love that. The accountability of, um, and it, you know, it just is what it is. Blame is, isn't even necessary. I think a lot of things, it's just, it is what it is at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I'm glad that resonates with you. Yeah. So what happened between middle school? Cause I know you started to really acknowledge your symptomology in middle school. Uh, mm-hmm. and then like what happened in middle school that really helped you to realize something's going wrong because then between middle and high school, it became escalated for you. Like it really became, yeah. you know, a, yeah. a real dangerous place for you. So what happened in middle school that you started to realize, okay, this is more than just wanting external validation. Something's going on inside of me. I didn't know. Okay, I, I think I, you know, I was, I, I was noticing, you know, a lot of this I'm looking back on, and know, like all these, you know, signs and symptoms and things. But during that time, I, I think it was a little bit of both of, I feel like I'm the only person in the world mm-hmm. who's going through this. And is everyone else going through this? Like, it was just, it, it would kind of fluctuate between that of like, I don't think there's anything that different. I think this is just how everyone experiences mm-hmm. 
middle school or life. And then at the same time, I just felt so alone. You know, I'm surrounded by, you know, four other kids right. at home. Right. By I'm, sports, I'm around all these people. And I felt such an epic, I don't belong here. Yes. There's something flawed or different about me. And it was always this, well, it's, it's that I'm not doing enough. I'm not as tough as my brothers and my dad. I'm not as good of an athlete as the people around me. I, you know, all these different things. And so I just thought, well, it's, and I describe this when I do uh, my presentations with Active Minds, where it just felt like there was just this gap and I was desperate to fill it. And that gap was just my inadequacy. I inherently believed there was something flawed and inadequate about me. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I was desperate to fill that up. You know, we, we uh, people with this, you know, big feelings are often the identified patient. You know, we're often the problem because we call things out and we want to have conversations and process it. And yeah. the others around us are like, what is wrong with you? You know, mm. <laughs> like, why yeah. can't you just go on along with the program? And, right. and so it's easy to feel flawed and yeah. it's easy to feel like, hey, look, there's eight others. If they're not doing feeling this way, what is wrong with me? If there's four others who seem to be following the program, what is wrong with you? It's mm -hmm. hard not to feel that way, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think underneath all that is this urgency that so many parents especially have, but just people in general, is to fix it, right? And big emotions aren't very fixable, no. right? They're, they need to be sat with, they need to be felt, they need to be experienced, and they need to be like, you know, you need to let them go. Mm -hmm. And so, I, and I think that's so much of like, oh, I don't, I don't know how to put this in a nice, clean little box. Mm -hmm. And so just stay yeah. over there. And, and in, in my, my family uh, and the culture of black and brown bodies, who has time for that? You're trying to survive, you know, systems of white supremacy, feeling, you ain't got no time to be talking about feelings. We got to get moving, you yeah. know? And so it's, it's, a, it's, it's layered in that way. It's like, I don't, I don't know that it's, it's not accessible. I think it's, it's just not available in a way that it is for bodies of privilege. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Yep, absolutely. So at a certain point, I'm going to put it in my language, but it seems like the depressive symptoms became deep into the point where you felt consumed and you, yeah. you were in a dangerous place. How, what did that look like for you? Yeah, that it was, it, it almost felt like I was just running out of time. Like I, wow. I just, there's this like internal clock for me and I'm like a middle schooler, right? I'm just, I'm feeling like my world is slowly ending every single day. And and so, and that's why like things I think progressed as I got older, because um, it just, it just kept getting closer to that, that feeling of, I'm, I'm, it, I was, I, I like to describe it as I'm like running down this tunnel and I can see the light at the end and it's just there to tease me. Mm, wow. I just can't get to it. And, you know, that I, I remember just going home and just looking at myself and hating who I saw and, and just, and, and still not knowing what this was. I didn't know, like, I didn't know what depression was. I didn't know what this was a mental illness or mental health thing. I just thought, again, this was a, um, a characteristic, an aspect of who I was. And so there's just so much shame around everything. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, it was, it was, it was heavy. The image of a tunnel that's teasing you is so provocative and profound at the same time. You know, yeah. this idea that you're getting closer, like that just feels, I felt that so much, you know, this idea that you're getting closer, but it keeps moving. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a and lot. I think a lot of that is, you know, that, that end of that tunnel is that's when I'm going to feel like I'm enough. That's sure. when I'm going to feel peace. Right. 
And, and, and then again, because I don't know what's going on, I don't know that this is a legitimate medical issue, right? That I'm not, I need to get help with therapy, medication. I didn't know that. And so again, I'm trying to fill that void or that, you know, uh, uh, finally feel like I'm enough or feel some peace by going, if I can just achieve this, or if I can just, you know, score this many points, or I can just do this, thing, like whatever it might be, I was grasping at straws. And so then my, my mental health became, it became kind of parallel with sports and achievement. Um, and, and there was a desperation around like, I need to be the perfect, I'm so flawed. I'm so inadequate. I need to be the perfect athlete or the perfect student or the perfect whatever in order to feel like I'm enough. And so there's, and then that pressure around that became so un unbearable uh, that I started fantasizing about just getting away from that pressure in and of itself. Um, and so that I'd fantasize about getting hurt and running away. And, um, you know, I, I remember this one time coming down from a rebound in a basketball practice and trying to land awkwardly to hurt myself. Because to me, um, the only thing that like the, it, the, the void was that I wasn't good enough. Right. So if I had a legitimate excuse to not be enough, which was like, get hurt, then I was off the hook, at least for a little bit. I got a little bit of relief from that pressure. That is so deep. That is so deep. I had a kid say to me this week, you ever wonder what it's like to not be here anymore? And an unseasoned, you know, clinician would panic at that. But it's so important. I want to speak to clinicians and say it's so important to be able to hold that conversation with kids. Oh, yeah. You know, you panic, you, you, you know, trigger judgment and, and then they withdraw and you don't get to have a conversation that's important to have. And to be able to have, you know, an authentic conversation about whether or not you ever wondered that just open the door to so much more. And so it has to be encouraged. Did you ever feel like you didn't want to be here? I hear you say you wanted a break from it, but did you ever feel any suicidal ideation? Yes. Yeah. And, and, and it, it did start with that, you know, it kind of progressed to, um, yeah, I don't, I want to run away. I'm out to get hurt. I want to run away. I don't want to be here anymore. And then started fantasizing. I don't like the word fantasize, yeah. but thinking about visualizing, um, yeah, ending my life mm -hmm. in some way. Yeah, the question moved on to, you know, what is it, what do you think it's like to die? Which is an interesting question, you know? Mm -hmm. and, um, and like I said, it opens the conversation for greater possibilities if you don't panic. So what I, what I wanna go to first before we get to how you began to find the help you needed was, you know, I found myself getting choked up when I read this part of your bio and it was like the fact that you felt like you were failing everyone, including yourself, that you thought you weren't the man you were supposed to be. I mean, it just broke my heart. First of all, you weren't a man, so there's no reason for you to feel like a man. But the fact that you had that, it's an ideal version of who you were. It was just, it, that's just so sad to me. Where did you get the idea that you were a man and needed to be all of this? I think growing up, just just being the youngest of five, you know, I got, so I got three older brothers and then and my dad and, and then looking around, you know, what is rewarded? What is, and so it goes back to that, I think that external validation of what behaviors are rewarded, being tough, being, um, you know, I, I grew up watching like John Wayne movies mm. of I'm going to do it on my own and I'm going to, I don't need any help. I don't need to show any emotion. I don't need, you know, I'm not going to cry. I think I just, it, but I, but I was also, I was, I was desperate for any image. Like I, I just wanted to feel different. And so if that was like, I need to be a man, I need to be the best athlete. I need to be the most talented here. It was just something I was trying to cling on to, mm -hmm. to fill that void mm -hmm. um, in any capacity I could. 
You made another important point when you said, you know, how being popular and a good athlete and maintaining this outward image. And in your words, you said, you know, this image of maintaining a fun, goofy kid, you know, it was a persona and you use sports and other activities as a cover, you know, in the fact that you thought that would hide the inner struggle. I just want to pause there for a moment and emphasize how many kids that describes. Parents get so caught up in, he looks fine, they look fine, they're doing fine, they have a lot of friends. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of parents who are like, my, my kid has a great social circle, and they don't realize the effort of holding a mask up of that weight and how it can impact you. Will you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, and that, that a mask, right, that that description is, is that was my whole childhood, you know? And, and, and then and the sad part too is that like, you know, I was wearing that mask and so many people are constantly just trying to hold it together. And then that's, that's validated because people are going, Oh yeah, they're good. They, they've got friends. They got all these different things. And they don't realize that, that these kids are doing that to survive. Mm. And yeah, it's, it's, and that's, I think that loneliness, because not only are you just desperate and you're trying to, you know, do whatever you can to hide who you, you know, with that internal struggle, but you're also, it's you're not allowing yourself to show who you really are mm. and and you're not you're not my i feel like the vast majority of my childhood i was never seen and a big part of that was because i didn't let people see me i was so terrified of vulnerability i was already so feeling so broken i couldn't handle someone seeing the real version of me and then i was terrified that they're going to be like yeah you're annoying you're too much you're whatever it might be i was so it's that whole thing of, of I'm going to let you reject the version of me. I'm going to show you mm. that's a lot easier than actually you rejecting me as a person. But it, it really had, a, I think, a big impact on me in my 20s to have these fundamental years where I was hiding who I was. Mm. And I didn't get to explore and I didn't get to be free and vulnerable and, and play around with stuff. It was in mm -hmm. that had later consequences. You know, you, you say something about, you know, like you didn't get to explore who you were. And I think, I think the trickery here is that, you know, in adolescence, you're not supposed to know who you are yeah. and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Making that okay and making it, you know, a curious time in your life is more beneficial than the pressure we put on kids to know who they are. You know, developmentally, it's an impossibility for someone with their bandwidth to know who they are. And so to even have that be an illusion is problematic for the mental health of our children. Absolutely. And then and, and so much within that is is rewarding vulnerability. Like we in order to play and figure out who you are, you have to be able to be vulnerable. And we do not reward that mm -hmm. at all. And that goes back to that, you know, when kids are, you know, being too much or these big emotions that mm -hmm. stay away, shut them down. Kids have to be able to ask these questions. And that, again, and that brings up, you know, when you're talking about that, that student who brought up, like, have you ever thought about not being here anymore? We need to hold space for kids to explore this stuff mm -hmm. and to be able to feel and not feel, feel shame about that. Yes. Yes. You know, the shame factor is so burdensome to, to people in general and to kids when they start feeling shame that young, man, that just does nothing but get heavier throughout their lifetime. You said um, a mental health checklist. You read the mental health checklist and it was like a light showed up on your symptoms. Can you talk about this process? Yeah. Yeah. So I was in, you know, because I went into to high school and, and uh, I'd for a long time felt that I need to be the perfect athlete to be enough. And then going into high school, 
because I still wasn't feeling good enough and I was doing really well in sports, but because I still wasn't feeling good enough, I felt like I'd expand that too. And so I got involved in um, theater and choir and speech and all these activities. And, and I truly felt every single aspect of my life I needed to be perfect, had to, in order to feel, for me to feel like I was enough. So going into 10th grade, so this is my, you know, my first year of high school. And then now my second year, I, I sat down in my health class and my teacher just handed out this random sheet of paper with all these symptoms on it. And I, this is the first time depression has even been in my mind. No one's even talked, like this hasn't been talked about. Nobody's brought it up before. I barely have heard this word outside of like maybe, maybe movies or TV shows or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, but I saw all these things on here of like struggling with concentration, low self-esteem, uh, putting excessive pressure on yourself. Um, thoughts of inadequacy, urges to hurt yourself, urges to, to not be here anymore, thoughts of suicide, all these things and more that I had. And it blew my mind because I was popular. I was a good student. I was an athlete. I was from a good family. I remember the hometown, in my hometown, the water tower says the city of quality living. And I remember thinking, how could somebody from the city of quality living be depressed? This, this makes no sense. Wow. I, I've no, I'm not someone who looks like depression. So that was um, a huge shock. And so I brought that sheet home that day to my mom. And I was really, I was hoping that she'd tell me, oh, it's just a team thing, just some phase you're going through. And she looked at that sheet of paper and she was as, as confused as I was. And so both in my life and my mom's life, nobody had talked about mental health. Nobody had talked about depression. And so then we, we brought that, she made an appointment with my doctor and asked him about it. And he diagnosed me with depression through that and man that so I'm, I'm just you know i'm my mind goes back to these moments i'm sitting in that doctor's office and him telling them yeah you have you know you have depression and i was so embarrassed wow, i was so, like, really i felt like my whole life i was trying to hide the flawed version of me right like i i always felt there was something broken about me and i'm going to make sure nobody can see that nobody can find that out i i can't let somebody see how how broken i am because nobody's going to want me okay uh, and again, i'm a middle schooler right like or at this time i'm i'm a high school but i'm still trying to hide who i am and so for for this doctor to say you have depression to me that was okay the real version of me is being exposed and i am broken um and people are yeah. finally starting to see that you know, so many times I hear kids say, you know, another kid this week was, was when we talked about depressive symptoms, it's like, I, I feel, I oddly feel relieved that mm. you're, you know, seeing something that I have felt, but didn't know how to name it. So it's it just, it's so sad to me that that wasn't a, a validation for you in that moment. I know it became one, but that yeah. is sad that you didn't get to feel a little bit of that relief in that moment. Well, because I didn't know anyone who had it, right? right? And that's, that's a big reason why I became a right. you know, mental health advocate and a speaker was because I felt like I was the only person in the city of quality living, mm -hmm. the only one. And, and so there brings back that sense of shame mm -hmm. of there's something inherently wrong with me and I'm, I'm, I'm the broken one. Yeah. Well, good for your mom because a lot of parents don't take that sheet uh, and, and go to the doctor. So good for your mom there. That was, that was a big move. It, it, yeah. And both of my, you know, parents, I mean, at, at different times showed up, you know, and, mm -hmm. and you know, that's, that's hard to see your kids struggle. It's mm -hmm. hard to, especially if it's something you don't really understand and they did the work. Yeah.
and and I'm internally grateful to them for that. And that is a massive privilege. Yeah. You know, you said something about, you know, this is not the face of depression. And I want to speak about that for a second, because, you know, depression doesn't have a face. It's not a it's not a body. These are symptoms. And I and I think that's the misnomer is that I don't look like I'm depressed. And so I appreciate you saying that because that is in people's minds, this idea that I don't look like I should be. And that's because it doesn't it doesn't have a look. And, and because we think it's about sadness, right? right? Like depression, it's not, I got nothing to be sad about. It's not about I'm sad. It's about a chemical imbalance and, and you know, things that are happening that are uh, having a detrimental impact on your mental health. It's not just this, I'm having emotions or I'm, I'm feeling good or I'm not feeling good. And, they, and, and that's, that's again why I wanted to become a speaker was so I could, you know, share some of these things some of these insights and this education around it. There's so much, um, stigma and so much misunderstanding about something that so many people go through. I appreciate so many things about your story. What I appreciate most is your ability to go public and move forward public as uh, a clinician and a speaker. And that is because so many of us are afraid to do that in our lifetime. And yet we became therapists. And I always say to clients, I, when I teach in grad school or, or I'll even say to my clients, don't think we got here by accident. <laughs> right. We mm -hmm. just wake up one day and say, oh, therapy sounds like a good place to be. You know, we are yeah. a product of the work that we've done for the reason we started doing the work. And yes. and we say that in these small spaces, classroom, whatever. But we don't typically go public and talk about our own mental health struggles. So I just want to, you know, not to be condescending, but I really want to commend you for that and also tell you how much I appreciate that, because it's it's really important to have people who are willing to do that. Thank you for saying that. You know, I, I, I really appreciate that. And I, there's a double edged sword to, I think, that whole thing. Absolutely. Because, you know, I, so I, I went through, you know, and, and after I found out this was a depression, that didn't, the journey didn't stop there, right? Not. And, you know, went in and I, I'd been arrested. I had a suicide attempt. I was self injuring, something like just falling apart even after that diagnosis happened. And I didn't finally start to truly heal until probably my senior year of high school. That's and, pretty early, David. That's very absolutely. early. Absolutely. Wow. And again, there was a lot of privilege in being able to have the opportunity to get therapy and get the support and interventions from the school that didn't, uh, that were very supportive. But I went from, I'm finally starting to heal to, I'm going to share my story on a national level that same year and then, and starting getting involved with the Octomind Speakers Bureau. And looking back now, there was a lot of really unhealthy reasons why I chose to put myself out there. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so it goes back to that, I think, external validation piece of like, okay, well here, like people are like, we're proud of you and you're doing great and you're doing all these things. So I was, and people were telling me, oh, it's amazing that you're going to school to be a therapist. And I just, it, it just, it was that people pleasing. I just want people to be proud of me and I will do literally anything to get that validation because that was my system for my self-worth for a long time. And even as I became a therapist, as I became a speaker, I didn't realize how flawed my inner system was. Mm. Um, I was chasing my tail for years and years and wondering, why do I keep getting burnt out? Mm. Wow. Thank you for saying that. Um, you know, it, it obviously makes sense. You know, there's potentially a lot of ego in being a therapist. You know, we're led to believe, we're not, well, I mean, we are responsible for people's lives, but we're led to believe that in a godly sort of way, way which is really a problem and can impede your ability to be an, an effective therapist. And so 
I do understand that external validation and how you became a speaker as a result of that. And I also want to highlight how you transitioned. You, you were able to evolve. And that's what it's all about. It's all about evolution. And I mean, that can be the way you enter the building, but it doesn't have to be the way you live in the building. So I think that that's an important nuance to, to mention. So thank you for saying that. Absolutely. Right. And that's it. And, and it's one of those things that I see a lot with therapists or, or speakers or people. As soon as I started being open about my story, it was all you're doing great. Things must be great. And there were so many times where then I, I felt that same stigma because I was a provider, because I was a speaker that I felt like, well, nobody wants to hear the success story, you know, quote unquote, um, struggling. And, and, and I think a lot of people, I supervise a lot of young clinicians and a lot of them come in with that same thing of like, I can't, now that I'm in this chair, I can't struggle anymore. And that is so backwards. It is so damaging, not only yourself, but your clients and the people around you that you're working with. Yeah, yeah. agreed. And, you know, this idea of very Western concept that I don't subscribe to, I think it's very Eurocentric, this idea of imposter syndrome. I know it exists and I know that it is real for people. So I don't mean to minimize that, but it does feel like how to put something on a shelf as opposed to a part of an evolution, which is a human experience, you know, like from a very humanistic perspective. It's like, we all go through an evolution of insecurity and a lack of confidence, but if we try to contain it in this yeah. imposter syndrome, then it becomes this thing that we live with. And I just don't think it has to envelop us like that. I think it needs to be more, more fluid. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, and, and to do that, we need to, we need to be honest. We need to be open. We need to be vulnerable. And, and that was, I think it was a handful of years ago now, but I really took on that. Like I need to be practicing when I'm preaching. I do not feel authentic in the work that I'm doing because I'm not, I am just checking boxes here. Mm. And, and it's that same thing. I'm running through that tunnel, just trying to get to the end of that, that light at the end of the tunnel, grasp that, you know, and so much. So I, I work in a, a therapy called, you know, DBT. I'm sure you're familiar. Right, of course. And, and there's, that a skill, a concept of radical acceptance. And one quote I try to remind myself often of and, and remind my clients of is pain plus acceptance equals pain, pain plus non-acceptance equals suffering. We have to do so much work to accept where we are and, and, and the fact that we do have those flaws, that we do have those struggles, that we do have, uh, that we're human at the end of the day and, and stop trying to live this idealistic, you know, I'm you know, I'm perfect. I'm good. I'm, I got this all figured out. Absolutely. Absolutely. Having been on this journey, made a career of it, what have you learned about yourself in this work and in this journey? Oof. It's a good question. The journey continues. Um, I, I, I think, you know, I, I finished my speeches by, I was telling, you know, I finished by saying, you know, from the moment I, 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 I finished telling my story to the moment I'm standing in front of that crowd, I continue to struggle. Mm. And if there's one thing I want people to know and a thing that I have to continually remind myself of is that it's okay to not be okay. There is no endpoint. There's ups and downs through this whole process and continually try to embrace that and not get sucked into that. Well, if I just do this, if I can just make this amount of money or achieve this or, you know, find the perfect relationship or whatever it might be, then so it's just it's just embracing um, not only the good parts of life, but also the struggle. And that's where not feeling shame about that. You know, that's, that's where we grow. I have a, a little uh, block on my desk here that says in the middle of difficulty comes opportunity. Right? And that's Einstein quote that you have to remember that I, I have to remember. 
you know, and I'll put that through a cultural lens because systems of white supremacy are constantly putting their foot on your neck. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel like this difficulty is going to turn into anything um, because it's just constant difficulty and the wounds keep being ripped open. But what I will say is that as a people of marginalized communities and in those of us who have grown up through, you know, the, the constant burden is that we do thrive, you know, we thrive and we thrive because our ancestors have, have taught us how to thrive. Um, And that doesn't mean, like you said, the struggle doesn't continue. It does. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't break us sometimes because it does. But we yeah. do have to take those opportunities to appreciate how far we have come individually and collectively. Absolutely. That's one of the first things that I try to tell my clients that come in feeling so small, right? And feeling so, so hurt and so, so broken, um, like I did for so many years. And I tried to tell, like, res- you are resilient. Mm-hmm. You have gotten this far. You have survived all of these things you have gone through. And um, you're still here. And, and, and that is absolutely something I think to celebrate yeah. and to be proud of, not as a, as a, as a state. Yeah. And, you know, and resilience, the way you're using doesn't mean you can keep knocking me down and I'm going to bounce back. Exactly. You know, I just want to clarify that because I think resilience is thought of to be, you know, it's, it's thought of in a way that just means, oh, you can take anything I'm, I'm giving you. And it doesn't mean that, you know, mm-hmm. you have some clarity about what you can and can't take. Absolutely. Yeah. So please, as we wrap up, tell people where they can find you, your practice, your public speaking, and also kind of what your focus is. Yeah. So I, I work at a practice in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area called Minnesota Center for Psychology, focusing on dialectical behavioral therapy. And I also have a side practice, um, private practice, all um, that's just me, that's called Guiding Light Wellness, that I really try to do very holistic work. I'm very into self-compassion, mindfulness, and just creating a space that you can just sit and, and be. And we, we have the spectrum of acceptance and change. And too often we're focused on the change part. So many of my clients, I'm not worried about them being able to change. I'm worried about them being able to sit and be with themselves and be with their situation for a second and allow themselves to take a breath. But outside of that, I work uh, for an organization called Active Minds, a phenomenal organization that it's been since about 2012, 2011. And you can find them at uh, activeminds.org. We have a phenomenal team of speakers that share their experience, share their story to help change the conversation. But also there's so much different programming that is out there in education through activeminds.org. They truly are uh, have an incredible mission. Any social media handles you want to drop? Um, yeah, at Guiding Light Well, I'm on Instagram. Um, this is a, a new thing to me. Uh, as I told you to some our messages, I'm a little bit old school, late to get <laughs> Social media thing, um, I'd like to put it, I'm, I'm trying to put out more content and just kind of sharing insights, education, and also my story, my experience, just to, get, again, get that conversation started. That's excellent. I appreciate you. I validate the conversation. And the one thing that I, I want to say, I just want to emphasize, is that part of your authenticity is your ability to be uncomfortable with this much exposure. I don't ever want you to lose that. I'm hoping, I'm hoping that you keep that because that's, that's, that's a charm, but it's also a gift. And, you know, that came across to me real early in my stalking you. So I appreciate that you trusted my outreach enough to respond and accepted my invitation. I hope this was as good an experience for you as I knew it would be. Now, yeah. thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate you. 
Thank you so much. And hey, I did I did my research on you too. I'm not, I had to make sure and, and you're doing phenomenal, phenomenal work. So I was honored to to be able to, to be here with you and, and talk with you. So thank you so much. Excellent. You know, we're about that change in the narrative life. So thank you so much again. Take care. I'll be in contact with you. Okay. Thanks so much. Okay. Take care. See ya. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.